always think it's strange when people clap me before I start, because I could be crap, you never know. Um, so I'm going to tell you all about um, the last 50 years, basically. We've had lasers for 50 years now, which is quite unbelievable. Um, and certainly when they came about in 1960, um, they were a solution looking for a problem. People just they were kind of a death ray thing. But over the last 50 years, they've become ubiquitous. And now we have, on average, maybe three lasers in our home, in our DVDs, in our CD players. And we rely on them for so many different things now that you just wouldn't imagine. Um, and they can also help us in the future. So I'm hoping to sort of go over what exactly a laser is, how it works, um, what we can use it for, do a few demonstrations to, to entertain you, and then um, tell you a bit about the future and, and what we can actually do um, and how they're going to help our lives in the future. So let's get on without further ado. So I just want to do a straw poll about what you think of when you think of a laser beam, okay? So when I put a picture up, if you identify with that picture, I just want you to, to raise your hand, okay? So number one, the Death Star from Star Wars. Nobody? Oh, you're all lovely. Oh, I'm, I'm seeing a sort of tentative hand over here. Um, hand Solo, come on, boys in the audience. Yeah, okay, there's a Hand Solo at the back here. Uh, Dr. Evil? Maybe, maybe not so many evil people. <laughs> well, if you don't know Austin Powers. But, um, weapons? Anyone identify with Yeah, okay, yeah. Oh, I can see. I'm, I'm making judgments about all of you here. Uh, the supermarket. That's, oh, boring. So he looks really bored, doesn't he? I mean, but he probably doesn't even realise he's using lasers, but in fact, they have revolutionised stock keeping and buying of food, believe it or not. So uh, that's a, an interesting and slightly dull application of lasers. So um, it's a pretty tangled web, the way lasers came about, um, over a period of actually quite a short period of time, a few years in fact. Um, although Einstein is kind of half off of the board there, um, 40 years before lasers actually came about, he came up with the equations that govern the atomic physics behind lasers, but he didn't actually realise that you could amplify light using these equations. So, um, you know, he's not... He's a complete genius, but he didn't realise that. So um, it took some other essentially clever people to actually do the thing. So where did it begin? 1958, Charlie Towns and Arthur Shorlow, they came up with this thing called the Maser, okay, which is a microwave laser, essentially. Um, does anyone know what laser stands for? I was just going to ask you that. Can you tell us, please? Oh, I was just going to ask if any of you knew. There we go, right, light amplification by stimulated emission radiation, okay, which might mean absolutely sod all to you at the moment, but it, hopefully in the next few slides it will start to mean something. So light amplification is laser, so maser is microwave amplification, so what they did first of all was make um, coherent microwaves instead of um, light. Um, at the same time, uh, a guy called Gordon Gould came up with the idea that you might be able to do an open resonator to, for light actually optical light. Um, he actually coined the term laser, okay? At the same time, because it was sort of the late 50s, uh, it was the Cold War, so we weren't really talking to the Russians at that point. So um, Alexander Prokhorov and Nikolai Basov were actually coming up with similar ideas as well. Um, it's just people weren't talking to each other, so there was a lot of separate development going on. Um, so Gordon Gould coins the term laser, and he tries to get a patent on it, and it gets refused, and it's actually awarded to Bell Labs. So, so began a 28-year legal battle on his behalf, of which he only got some very minor victories in the 80s. So he's a kind of underdog of this story, I'm afraid. <laughs> so um, 1960 comes around. Ted Maiman, Theodore Maiman, demonstrates the ruby laser for the very, very first time. Okay? Landmark. Someone has actually physically made a laser. Shortly after, Ali Jarvan, he makes a laser out of helium neon. And then both Basov and Jarvan actually come up with a concept that you can make a diode laser. And I'm actually going to talk a little bit about diode lasers just because they are so important for our lives. They're the, numerically the most common laser in the world and make us a lot of money as well. And then a bit later on, uh, Prokhorov, Shorlow and Towns finally get the Nobel Prize in 1964, which is actually quite close to the discovery of the laser, if you think about it, because often people don't get them until a lot later on. Although this was all very contentious and there may be loops and weaves of this story that I have left out because it is quite tedious. However, that is the general discovery of the laser story. So, 
Well, because I was saying at the beginning, he came up with the equations that actually govern the atomic physics 40 years before, but he didn't realise that it was actually going to turn into a laser. So, um, before we start delving into atomic and quantum physics, there is going to be physics in this talk, I do warn you, um, let's think about some of the special properties of lasers. Now, um, I'm afraid that I'm going to be picking on various people in the audience uh, over the evening, so don't think you're hiding anywhere. Um, First of all, I just want, if you, if you feel able, to stand up and um, you're going to help me demonstrate uh, coherence, please, if you all stand upon your feet. So, what do we know about white light, okay? I'll show you some white light. Okay. If it comes out. White light. Spreading out in all directions. Doesn't look particularly useful. Made up of lo lots of different colours, okay? And laser light is of one colour, and all the waves are in phase, and travelling in the same direction. Now, why is that important? Okay? So, firstly, I want you to be white light. Okay? I just want you to jump up and down randomly. I don't want you to try and do it in time with each other. Okay? Just, just do it. And go. That's it. So, if we're trying to move the floor, I don't think we're being particularly effective, right? Right, now I want you to jump up and down whilst I'm clapping. Ready? And go. One, two, three, four... Five. Right, okay, so you are laser light now. So <laughs> thank you very much. Have a, have a rest. Okay, so um, yeah, I'm probably going to need the lights off for the next few minutes. So, um, so what you can see is coherent light traveling in one direction is actually pretty useful, pretty powerful. Oh, I can't see anything now. But that's. Do you want this one? Mm, the other one's probably better because I'm going to be showing spectra on the wall there. So. so White light spreading out in all directions, different wavelengths. Laser light, one colour, going in one direction, all the waves are in step. So that's the first property, this coherence, okay? Now, the second special property of laser light is that it's monochromatic, okay? So singular colour. So let's just have a look at the content of white light and see what it looks like. Let's turn it on. Oh, dear. Okay, so what I have here, this piece of kit here is a diffraction grating, okay? So if we remember back from our school days, diffraction, when you've got your ripple tank and you've got a barrier and you've got a little gap and they've got a plane waves coming towards a gap and when it gets to the gap it starts spreading out, okay? On that piece of kit there's lots of lines which act as obstacles which diffract the beam. And at each point, the beam is diffracted and starts interfering. And you get orders of diffraction. So what this is, is the straight through without any kind of um, dispersion. And at this point, the beam is dispersed into its colour. So it kind of does what a prism does. So what we can see is white light is made up from blue over to the red there. Okay? Visible light. Now, let's actually have a look at the content of this in a spectrometer. So I've bought a very handy little, this is a very small but exe pretty expensive spectrometer, it's about six grand, so I'm not going to drop it. Uh, I actually use this on experiments at Rutherford. So. Um, and what I'm going to show you is what the content of light looks like. Let's turn this back on. So what we're looking at here is wavelength along the bottom and just the intensity and counts up the side. So I'm just going to put some, oh, take the end off, put some light in there. What you can see is it's a pretty broad spectrum between about 400 nanometers and about 750 nanometers there. So that's our visible light spectrum, okay? Now, let's have a little look at what lasers look like. So firstly, oops, that's the key. We've got, that's green laser light. So does anyone know what wavelengths green might come out at? Yeah, about 532 this is. Okay, so you can see a very, very narrow spike at 532, okay. You can see hardly any bandwidth whatsoever. It's a very, very narrow stream of light. Now, let's have a look at red. Does anyone know where red is liable to appear? It's about 630 this is, so there we go. So what we can see is another 
very narrow peak. I'm trying not to shine the full laser light down because you can't see the peak. So nifty little diagnostic there to show us the content of laser light, which is essentially monochromatic. Okay. So let's get back on with our laser properties. Uh -huh. Okay, next one. So as you can see, when we've got laser light actually going in one direction, what we saw when we switched the white light on is it just spreads out in all directions. But you can see this beam just goes for ages and ages, and I'm just sh shining it on the back wall here. You can just see the beam is almost nearly parallel. Um, if I shone a fairly powerful laser beam towards the moon, it has to be fairly powerful because it's got to get through the atmosphere, um, the beam would probably be about a mile across by the time it reached the moon. But however, that's actually nothing considering the, the distance it actually has to shine across. So this is another really interesting and special property of lasers, which means you can manipulate them and use them for all sorts of different applications. Is, is that a consequence of it having the same frequency? Yeah, the, the coherence and, and the way that the light is generated means that it's just going in, in one direction. perfect world, I'd be a millionaire, wouldn't I? Well, maybe. Um, here's a fundamental thing which I'm going to keep coming back to. Um, it's kind of a figure of merit for lasers, especially in my field of expertise, which is the highest power lasers in the world. I think you probably judge that from my face. I look a bit deranged. Um, this is a, a, a figure of merit that we like to use intensity in watts per square centimetre. Um, laser beams are highly focusable because of the, the parallel nature of the beam. Um, and intensity is power over area. Okay? Um, and it's certainly very important for, for my lasers because I can, I can get focus laser light to something like 10 to the 21 watts per square centimetre, which may not mean anything to you, but it's like all the light falling on the earth focused onto the head of a pin. The laser electric field is so great, you can rip apart atoms. And you make plasma instantly, which is, which is what the sun's made of. So kind of studying... Uh, the most extreme states of matter when you get to, to that kind of intensity. So pretty exciting stuff, really. Uh, I take it for granted, but it is an honour sometimes. Uh, so let's start thinking about how lasers actually work. Um, we're all familiar with the atom, uh, the nucleus sitting at the middle, and then the electrons kind of whizzing around at different orbits. Okay. Now, there are several different atomic processes that can happen uh, during atomic physics. Uh, one of them is spontaneous emission. So we can give the atom some energy. So these two levels that I've drawn here, the top one is when the atom's in an excited state, and the bottom one is when it's not excited anymore. It's not got any extra energy. So if an atom has some extra energy, it can basically lose that by emitting a packet of energy, in this case, a photon. Okay? Um, I always think it would be quite good to be able to lose energy that way. Rather than running around, just sit and glow glamorously rather than, you know, running around all over the place. Um, that's just my weird fantasies, though, and I'm sure you really don't want to know about that. Um, <laughs> um, stimulated absorption is basically the opposite of that, where you've got an atom sitting in the ground state, a photon comes in, and the atom can absorb that photon and be excited. Now, the final process is stimulated emission, and of course, as you so rightly put, that's the very last part of the laser acronym. Uh, light amplification through stimulated emission radiation. What happens here is you've got an excited atom already and you've got a photon coming in. And that photon can basically stimulate that atom to release another photon that's identical to the original photon. So it's a photon photocopier. Do that over and over and over and over again, you get a powerful laser. So this is, this is the crux of, of lasing. Okay? This is how a laser actually works. So let's think about how you would actually physically get a laser to work. Now, I have part of a laser. This rod here is part of one of the world's most powerful lasers, i.e. the Vulcan laser, which I work on at Rutherford. Um, Maiman actually did it with Ruby, but this, this here is a lump of glass that's been doped with an atom called neodymium. Okay? And it's the neodymium atom that, is the laser, that, that does the lasing, basically, that emits the light. So what you do is you have a chunk of some material that will emit light. Then you give it some energy, because what we want is lots of excited atoms, because stimulated emission works with lots of excited atoms. So you 
put some white light into this, excite the neodymium atoms or whatever atoms you want, um, and then you need stimulated emission to occur, okay, which it will do. But some of these atoms will just decay spontaneously and emit some light. So some noise photons start swilling around in the rod, and then they can start instigating stimulated emission, which is the lasing transition, and this is the one that's important, okay? How do we get more of it to happen? Stick two mirrors, one on either side. So what you make is a laser cavity. So you've got a reflective surface here and a reflective surface here. So as you could see through the animation, start it again, photons multiply up, multiply up, multiply up, okay? So that's basically how a laser works. Now you'd think, well, that's a bit stupid. You've got two reflective surfaces. How are you going to get the light out? Well, one of the reflective surfaces is actually just 99.999% reflective, as opposed to the other one, which is virtually 100% reflective. Okay? So light can get out. And there's a variety of ways of special materials and intensity-dependent materials that you can make a, a laser cavity out of, which you're going to see a bit later on. So this is essentially how a laser works. On the other hand, if you want to make a super high power laser, get, get rid of the mirrors, and you just put rows and rows and rows and rows in rooms and rooms and rooms of this stuff, and then you get loads of light. And, and that's essentially what we do at Rutherford. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit more about that. Okay, putting the rod down. So, what did Ted actually do? How did he actually demonstrate the laser? Well, instead of neodymium glass, um, what he did is he got a ruby rod and he flashed white light in, as we still do. That's pretty old laser technology, actually. Um, we need to get better at that when, when we're developing future lasers. Um, flash tube excites the ruby atoms in this rod uh, and lasing transitions occur and lots of monochromatic coherent light comes out. So, very clever guy, obviously very skilled in the lab uh, and we thank him for that because lasers are everywhere now which is pretty exciting. So, as I said before, it kind of, when the laser was invented, it was almost a solution looking for a problem. People were like, what the hell are you going to do with that? That's just, yeah, light coming out of something, you know, big, big deal. It didn't take long before lasers were actually picked up. Um, so in the 60s, um, just as a brief timeline, quite a few different types of laser were um, demonstrated, which is what I was telling you on the first slide. So shortly after Ruby, Ali Jarvins does the, the, the helium neon, Robert Hall does the diode laser, and so on and so forth. Sorry, was that a diode laser? A diode laser, yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm telling you about those a bit later because they're very important. Um, so shortly after that, some industrial applications uh, were developed at a place called TWL in the UK. Actually, a lot of the laser stuff was pioneering in the UK and still is. We're pretty good at lasers here, let me tell you. Um, I've seen some videos of, of this on Tomorrow's World back in the day. They're absolutely great. I couldn't get hold of them for this because I would have shown you, but it probably would have taken up half the session. But they're absolutely classic. They're how Tomorrow's World used to be back in the day. I mean, I was a bit small, but, you know, <laughs> still. I, that was an inspiring program, nonetheless. Um, so the applications were identified, but they hadn't yet been rolled out in industry. Um, Weirdly, at the same time, the, co the whole concept of the compact disc and lasers reading the compact disc was invented, but it wasn't capitalised on until the early 80s. So that's really quite interesting. I actually had no idea that, that, that the laser to do, with the, uh, to do with the compact disc was invented so early on. But there's a lot of clever people out there. So we move on to the 70s. Industrial lasers roll out um, just for a few applications, but now you can't move for industrial lasers. If you look at the, the different processes that say um, that you used in a car industry, so many of them use lasers for cutting, welding, because they're so efficient on all these things. And also marking things as well. Uh, it's very impressive. There's loads of videos on YouTube if you're nerdy enough to go home and, and look it up. Very impressive videos. Again, slightly dull, but completely revolutionary. Barcode scanners in 1974 completely revolutionised the supermarket experience. Uh, you could definitely keep track of your stock on, uh, uh, much more easily. Um, and it made buying food a lot more easy as well. This is highly important, so I'm going to come back to it. Fibre, optics and lasers uh, were developed. This forms basically the fundamental basis of our entire being now in terms of fast optical communications. And I just think it's probably one of the most important things lasers have been involved in. Um, let's move into the 80s. Surgery 
we can actually use lasers to reshape our eyes. Now, as a high-power laser scientist, I'm always told, don't look down the laser beam. So if I had eyes that were poorly and that I needed to get corrected, I'm not sure I could do it because it would be defying all my health and safety knowledge just to sit there and have a laser shone in my eye. But I think they give you so much sedative that you probably wouldn't be aware of, of what was going on anyway. So. But basically, the, the laser actually ablates your cornea and reshapes it. Um, it's absolutely genius. Um, you can also get rid of tattoos that you regret, um, resurface your skin. Um, and, and now, I've seen, I've seen um, a professor giving a talk on something called photodynamic therapy, which is actually a treatment for cancer, where you give someone a photoactive drug that gets absorbed into the tumour, and then you shine laser light into it, which stimulates the, the chemical in the tumour and destroys the tumour. And that, the results are stunning, really very stunning. Um, and it is used. Um, it's not rolled out widely yet, but it's, it's getting there. So it's, it's another amazing technique to use. Um, eczema lasers were developed, which are, which are essentially uh, UV lasers. Now, they're good for lithography, i.e. making little features on chips. Okay? And this has driven the computer market because you want to fit more and more on one chip so that you can make computers more and more powerful for, for the size of the computer. Okay? So how short a wavelength lasers you can get drives the computer industry at the moment. That may change, depending on how computers change. So the fight here is to get shorter and shorter and shorter wavelengths, um, pushing, pushing um, UV into the XUV, into the X-ray, because the shorter wavelengths that you have, the smaller the features that you can make. So uh, also very interesting. And then finally in the 1980s, um, erbium-doped fiber lasers which I will point out why they're important, uh, were innovated at the Southampton University. Uh, fantastic innovation and has driven fast optical communications ever since. So all very exciting stuff. So you can see lasers, there is a wide range of applications. I could just stand here talking forever about this, but I don't really want to because there's lots of interesting stories to tell. But as you can see, this is, this is where it has reached us already in terms of industry, cutting, entertainment, DVDs, CDs, Blu-ray, um, measurement, weapons, entertainment, uh, tattoo removal, as I said before, chip manufacture, and all the rest of it. So they are everywhere now. You cannot get away from lasers. Um, and also people shining them in your eyes at, con at concerts and things, which is kind of annoying. And also makes me jumpy because uh, a nice safe laser, which is one that I have here, is a milliwatt. You can buy 50 milliwatt lasers over the internet, which is very, very dangerous and very scary. Um, and there are lots of strange laser hobbyists who open up their Blu-ray uh, players, take out the 300 milliwatt blue laser, and make it into a cigarette lighter, which is utterly ridiculous. It's on YouTube. It's not, fa it's not fake. Lighting a cigarette. So you're shining that 300 milliwatt laser quite near your eye. These guys are very, very stupid. Um, working with lasers makes you very jumpy about lasers, let me put it this way. So it's just um, basically communication over a distance. You can basically, um, they will propagate long distances rather than just using sort of a, you know, a, a heliotrope thing, you know, like the, the sun thing. You can propagate. But you can also um, use them for astronomy as well, which I'll come back to later. So. Um, so let's talk about the diode laser. So we'll revisit atomic physics just briefly. So uh, this isn't a, a record player. It's an atom. You've got your nucleus in the middle. And these little lines here just represent the orbits at which electrons can whiz round. Okay? And as you know, if an electron can migrate outwards, if it drops back down again, it has to lose energy, and it does so by emitting light. Okay? And so taking this concept, um, electrons recombining with atoms results in the emission of light. So... Uh, what is a diode? It's a very tiny uh, piece of equipment that is made up of two different types of semiconducting material. So, you know, with metals, there's lots of free electrons sort of swishing around, which is why they're good conductors. Semiconductors have a similar sort of thing. Um, so you can have two types of semiconductor. A P-type semiconductor, which has a lack of negative charges, and we call that lack of negative charges holes. It's a very strange concept. 
but it's basically spaces which can accept electrons, okay? On the other side, there's an n-type layer, which has a, an excess of, of negative particles, i.e. the electrons. Now, if you stick those two bits of material together, you get a rush of negative um, particles coming over and recombining with the holes and emitting light at the same time. Now, this is okay, but it will happen up to a certain level of which then equilibrium is established and no more light is emitted, and you don't really want that. So what you do is you put a potential difference across this whole thing, and that basically keeps injecting negative charges in, and they keep recombining with holes. Now, how, how does this make a laser, you might ask? Well, what you do is you polish the facets, so you have a, a laser cavity. So you've got some light being emitted by this PN junction, and then that light stimulates more light to be emitted, as you can see, through stimulated emission, and you get coherent light coming out of it. So they make tiny, tiny lasers. That is a diode laser, okay? Tiny, tiny lasers sitting on the head of a needle. It's those types of lasers that are now everywhere in your DVDs, CDs. Um, these are the things that are used for optical communications. Um, semiconductors are used to um, amplify light over long distances for optical communications. So highly, highly, highly useful, highly numerous. These are the, numerically the most common laser in the world. Massive market for these things, okay? I cannot overstate how brilliant diode lasers are, right? <laughs> I, th I think they're great. Um, had I not worked in massive lasers, probably would have gone into semiconductor lasers, but it's a bit late now. <laughs> um, so pretty important stuff there. Now, I keep banging on about... Go on. See this? What, that bit? Feature. That's the light coming out. Right. It's so just... That's not an extra bit. No, no, that's just light coming out. That's, that's all. Cool. Uh, so I've been banging on a bit about how brilliant fast optical communications is, but um, it is really important. Okay. Um, so let me just tell a little story first. Um, Junishi Nishisawa, he came up with the concept that you could use light instead of um, copper cables to actually transmit information. And... A guy called Charles Cow actually um, realised that you could make optical fibres out of glass if you removed certain dopants because they were highly lossy and just wouldn't have transmitted anything over long distances. Um, however, even though you can have um, long cables over long distances, they're very, very lossy, so you need uh, periodically to, to, to amplify using diode lasers as an amplifier at certain periodic times, which is kind of a pain in the bum. How can you get around this? Well, this guy, David Payne, is absolutely brilliant. He's at Southampton University, and he innovated the erbium dope fibre laser. So make the fibre the laser. How, how genius is that, right? So you, you mix your signal in with another laser, and you put that down a fibre. And this, this fibre is doped with erbium, okay? So... Um, the laser itself actually um, pumps the, the fibre, and then the signal basically then drinks up that energy and becomes amplified, um, which is just completely brilliant. Um, and that was innovated in the UK, so another thing that we're really good at. Um, how on earth do fibres work? Well, let's have a look. I'm going to need pitch black for this, I'm afraid. Uh, and I might get wet. This might go wrong. So, um, what I'm going to do is just demonstrate using this water with a little bit of milk in, the concept of total internal reflection, which is how a fibre actually works. So if I can do this without... What, what should happen, if it's all lined up, is the laser that you can see going through here will be totally internally reflected in the water as it comes out. Okay? So if you're sitting over there, you might not be able to see this. Oh, here we go. Oh, that's a bit... So you can see at the top there the light is actually starting to be totally internally reflected. Okay, this hole is not the most clean of holes, which is why the water is actually... So, it's obviously highly lossy, which is why the, you don't see much propagation, but you can see the light beam actually being reflected down inside here, okay? 
I'm going to stop that and then put it down. Sorry? Losses, i.e. lose energy, to lose energy. So it just gets attenuated, i.e. Uh, made less bright. Um, and say, for example, with that water beam, light could be uh, not just totally internally reflected in the beam, but actually go out of it as well, so spreading out a bit. So, but let me explain the concept of internal reflection that might make uh, a little bit more sense. So we've got some light propagating in glass. We probably all did this experiment at school. And then we've got some air. Now, we've got your light beam coming in, um, and it gets refracted. Um, if, there, if there are two different media that have different, what's called refractive indexes, basically it just means the light's bent. It's kind of what happens when you put a light in a prism, the light gets bent, right? So there is a certain incident angle by which, though, that the light doesn't come out any longer. It just gets completely reflected back into the medium. And that's how a fibre actually works. You put that light in at a certain angle so that it just keeps bouncing down the fibre, Okay. So you can make light go around corners, which I think is quite fascinating. And if you think I'm lying, I'm going to prove otherwise. So, don't worry, we don't need the light off for this one. So, what I need is somebody just to randomly pass this end around, see where it ends up to people. I've only got a finite length here, I'm afraid. That'll probably do. Uh, don't look down the end. Just shine it on your hand. Uh, here comes the laser. There we go. So what you can see is this, this is going, taking a very random path, but the, light, the laser light is actually getting out of it. And this isn't a very good fibre either. I've chucked this around all over the place, so it's probably not in any good condition at all. So um, completely fascinating and clever way of transmitting light and information and how the internet and fast communications work now. But I'm going to stop going on about the internet now. I don't know. I haven't. Uh, I mean, I've stepped on these things before, um, and and yeah, broken them. So uh, they don't like being stepped on. Yeah, basically, this is what's laid under the ground now instead of copper copper cables. Optical cables as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, exactly. So th this is basically how all of that works. So completely brilliant. All right, so I'm going to only briefly touch on this because I know sod all about money. I just know how to spend it. So, uh, but what I did want to sort of highlight is lasers make us money, okay? It's a five to seven billion dollar market. It's massive. Uh, pretty, pretty impressive. Mostly in materials processing. Uh, then, of course, second best is communications, which is unsurprising given how much I've just banged on about lasers and communications. Then data storage, things like CDs, CDs DVDs, etc., etc. Then we've got medical lasers, military R&D, which I'm surprised at the level of funding for that. I would have thought it would be more, but I guess they don't really care about lasers, do um, And then a whole range of other fairly dull things that, that lasers get used for, like printers and stuff like that. So, massive market. And they're set to make us even more money as well. And hopefully if they could, uh, lasers could form part, especially diode lasers could form part of future energy generation, which is something that I work on, um, which I will go into in a little bit. Um, and so again, that could make a huge market for, for these new diode pumped lasers, which I will tell you a little bit about. So yes, go on. Oh no, when I say when you pump. That was the last one of that list. Oh, right, I don't know. Nothing gets past diaries. No, yes, it does. No. Do you know what? Pumps. Oh, pumps, pumps in the sense of what you can do. You know, when I was talking about this um, and you put white light in there, you can actually physically pump lasing materials with other lasers. So when, that's, when it says pump, it's not pump like that, but a pump for another laser. Okay? Good question. I'm glad you're awake. Um, so this is kind of walking into the realm of my expertise now. Um, as we're human beings, we like to see how far we can push things, don't we? And, and 
how powerful or how big or how high we can jump or whatever. And no, 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 no. Oh, yes. I'm not doing that. That's yeah, awful. That, that's what people do. Yeah, but they're rubbish. They've got something they want to make a weapon of it. Well, yeah, that's the duality of physics, unfortunately. Uh, as long as you stay ethical and aware, then you can avoid these things in, in general. Um, no, what we're trying to do is make the highest power lasers, which are absolutely crap as weapons, because you need um, facilities the size of like football pitches, uh, which is essentially what we have. So, um, over the last few decades, there have been several techniques in order to try and develop powers of the laser to, to, to bigger proportions. Um, so, a lot of the lasers that you see now, they're on all the time. They're what's known as continuous wave operation, okay? But there's something that you can do, um, which means you can go from continuous wave to pulsed, and I'll, t I'll tell you why. Um, so I'm going to need someone who likes holding signs up for me, because uh, I'm just going to write an equation down. Oops, this carpet is not so great for writing. Oh. All right. Would you like to? Glamorous assistant. Right, there we go. Power is energy over time. I'm going to periodically ask you to do this, so you might want to sit on that chair. Um, another fundamental parameter of laser physics, right? Power is energy over time. Why is this important? Well, make a, make a laser pulse. You can stuff a load of energy in it, but do it over a short time. That gives you a lot of power. Really short, quite a lot, sort of moderate, big power, okay? Thank you for that, if you just sit down for a minute. So, how do we go from continuous wave lasers to pulsed? <laughs> um, a few different methods. Um, I'm going to just cover three that have basically made the major changes. So, what we're looking at here is a, is a plot of year against that, that figure of merit I showed you earlier, focused intensity, which is important for high-power lasers in watts per square centimetre. And as you start going up in... Um, watts per square centimetre, you can enter different regimes of physics. Um, at the moment, we're here. All right? We are accelerating electrons to kind of relativistic energies. Okay? Relativistic? Approaching the speed of light. Oh, right. okay. A fraction of the speed of light. Okay? So, quite energetic, but it's not LHC. Okay? Um, I bet you didn't know we could accelerate particles with lasers, but you can. Um, I'll tell you a bit about that later. However, if you start approaching really high focused intensities, you can basically fire a laser into a vacuum and create particles. Right? No one has ever done that before. Right? So this is really interesting stuff. And this, is, this sort of, sort of thresholding is, it drives the, the physics of high-power lasers, among other things. So... What were the techniques that we could go from continuous wave to, to pulsed and therefore get higher power? First one is Q-switching, then mode locking shortly after, and then chirp pulse amplification, which was pioneered in, in Europe. And we have been pioneers at Rutherford of different flavours of, of chirp pulse amplification, which I'm not going to go into because I always think they work by the tides of the moon and they're quite hard to, hard to explain, as is most of this stuff. Um, however... CPA, I, I'm going to explain it uh, shortly, but CPA stands for, for Chirped Pulse. Chirps. Yeah, I'll explain what chirp is, don't worry. It's all going to be very confusing until I get there. Um, so let, let's go back to the Q-switching, okay? So we've got our laser cavity, um, and we want to drive it very, very hard with the pump, so all the, all the atoms are excited, but we want to minimise how much of that energy is wasted just with spontaneous emission. Um, and we don't want lasing to occur until we've basically what's called gain-saturated the rod, i.e. made all of the atoms excited that could be excited. So you don't want any lasing to occur before you do that. So how do you st stop being the cavity reflective for some time and then start it being reflective for some time? This is a process called Q-switching. And our old friend Gordon Gould was one of the pioneers of this. So, again, our underdog uh, comes up. I actually think he looks a bit like a beat poet in that picture rather than a laser physicist. But um, I didn't know who these guys McClung and Hell were, so I didn't have pictures for them. So, unfortunately, they've got some horrible little smiley faces there. So, 
don't know what they look like. They're not on the internet. Everything's on the internet. Why are they not on the internet? Um, so how does this work? Well, you pump the rod, okay, until the point where you've got some losses that start to happen where the atoms are just spontaneously emitting light. And of course, the light levels in the cavity will reach a certain threshold. Now, this piece of material is called a saturable absorber, okay? Um, below a certain power threshold, it's not transparent. But suddenly, when the losses reach a certain point, this suddenly flips and becomes transparent, and then you have the mirror. Photons start back bouncing back and forth, you get your stimulated emission, and it all comes out at once. So, in a kind of big splodgy pulse. Okay, so it's, it's a way of making a fairly long pulse, low repetition rate, i.e. not very often, laser. Okay, so this is the kind of first innovation of pulsed lasers. So not great, but it's better than continuous wave. Okay, so could you please hold up our sign? So we've gone from continuous wave, which is just power all the time, to some energy contained in a fairly short space of time. In this case, sort of microseconds, so not great, but high power, okay, fabulous. That's not the, the last time that you need to do <laughs> All right, mode locking. Okay, so if we remember back to our school days, um, waves on a string experiment, okay, so you've got a string and you hold it at two different ends and you've got a resonator and you turn the frequency up and the first mode appears, which is just the fundamental mode. And then you get the second mode, third mode, fourth mode, blah, 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 blah. The same thing happens in a laser cavity. Because what you've got is light backing back and forth. So you've got an optical resonator, essentially. And modes form in the cavity, okay? But you get multiple modes forming, just out of nature. But you can fix the, the length of this cavity so that the right modes form. And those modes can interfere, all right? And when they do that, it forms a pulse train of very, very short pulses. Um, we can make femtosecond lasers like that. Um, that's the limit that we're at at the moment, but we can drive it further with different techniques, which I'm not going to go into today, because I could just talk forever about lasers, which I'm sure you don't want to do. You have homes to go to. Um, so what you've got is a, a train of pulses coming out. So stand up with our <laughs> sign again. This time... If you can imagine, you've got a moderate amount of energy, but you're dividing it by something to the power of 15, right? To the power of minus 15, sorry. So you get a massive number. Power is huge. So this is another way of getting super powerful, ultra short pulse lasers, okay? All right, so. 10 to the power of minus 15, yeah. Femto, that's the prefix for that, all right? So, let's think about chirped pulsed amplification now, which I'm going to explain what chirp means very, very shortly. But let's just think about what a laser pulse is, all right? All the colours are in phase, and they're moving at this, roughly at the same time, if you don't think about dispersion, which is a problem, but let's, for the purposes of this, think they're all going at the same time. So let's just think about our colours as a car, and we're going to measure the front of the pulse, and then they'll reach the finish line, and that's the back of the pulse, all right? So that's essentially our laser pulse propagating through time. Now, the problem with amplification is that you want to put a lot of energy into a short pulse, you get high power, which is what you want at the end. But during the amplification process, there's a limit to which you can do that before you actually damage your optics because the power is so high. So this is, this is the limit people reached after mode locking. They were like, oh shit, what do we do? We've got to think of something clever to, to get around this. So what they thought of is, ha, what do we do? Stretch the pulse in time. That's your chirp. That's called chirping, weirdly. I don't know why. I don't know what chirp has to do with time, but there you go. Stretch the pulse in time, amplify it, and then squish it at the very last minute. That way you're minimizing the optics that you're going to burn or damage. Uh, often with uh, high-power lasers, it, you're in a one-shot scenario with some things, so uh, you have to be quite careful. And which means you have to keep the beam big as well. Our beam at Vulcan is a metre in diameter. So it's just a big pancake of light flying through the air, which is just a bit weird. Um, so how, how do you actually go about 
what is this pulse stretching? How does it work? So looking at the line, this is our marker. This is what we're, we're looking at the front and the back of, of the pulse, all right? So we've got a process by which we can stretch the pulse. And the process actually basically creates a path difference for each different color. And that effectively temporarily stretches the pulse as well. Let's just have a look at that. We've, we've got made a path difference there. So you can see when, it, when, the, when the cars pass through this point, they do it at different times. So the pulse has lengthened because of this weird stretchy thing that we've done here. And then once we've amplified in this region, we then compress the pulse back together. Okay, so that's what's called chirp pulse amplification. Okay, how do we do it? Well, we use our old friend diffraction grating here. Because you could see on the wall, I spread the light out in different colours and the red was travelling further than the, the blue. So there was spatial difference, which means they travel different lengths, which means the pulse is temporarily lengthened. Okay, now this guy, Gerard Maru, he's a French man. He really does love himself, but he should because he's uh, come up with this amazing thing, CPA. Um, would you like to stand up? I mean, I've written it up here, power eats energy over time, but I'd like you to stand up again. <laughs> Just to keep reminding us of our figure of merit. So in this case, what we want to do is reduce the power, right? So we've got our little short pulse, but we don't want to amplify that, obviously. We get a pair of gratings, which basically disperse this spatially, which means we've got a temporal chirp. Hooray. Pass it through the amplifiers. So we've got lots of energy. And then at the very, very last knock-ins, do the exact reverse of this. And we get a hugely amplified short pulse. Power is energy over time. Hooray. I think that's the last time you have to do that. So round of applause for you. Um, so we have pioneered this technique and a, a, and a further technique, which is called optical parametric chirp pulse amplification, which I'm not going to go into because I'll just be here forever. Um, which basically means that we have, well, we did have the highest intensity focus laser in the world. We're really good at building high power lasers in the UK, all right? So uh, I'm quite proud of that. So Vulcan is just up the road in the Rutherford Appleton Laboratory. Um, and it's the size of two Olympic swimming pools, okay? One Olympic swimming pool on this side is basically filled with this stuff, neodymium glass, right? So that's the lasery bits. And the other side, this is my domain, okay? Uh, and this is where we actually focus the lasers and use them. I'm a plasma physicist, basically, so what I do is rip apart atoms, make plasmas, and then study them in my part, for fusion energy, um, which is what we can use lasers for. Um, but I will go on to that in slightly more detail. Um, so, big, big facility. Uh, what does it look like? Well, I mean, it's open to the public, so you can come visit. But, however, for the purposes of us sitting here... Um, so, on this side, that's where some of the initial magic happens. That's the OPCPA uh, front end, which makes lots and lots of gain at the beginning and then all you have to do is pass it through some of this stuff and then you get super amounts of energy. In order to drive all the flash lamps and Faraday's and all the things that um, gate the pulse optically and stop it from going reflecting back, you need a huge capacitor bank. So all of these, that's a person, that's a, my friend Paul, all of these are capacitors. Can you, it's just amazing. They're huge, great big things. Um, this, these sort of weird torpedo-shaped things are actually laser amplifiers. So you start off with little small ones, but due to the fact that you can only have a certain amount of power inside here, you have to get bigger and bigger and bigger and expand the beam because if we remember, intensity is power over area. So you make the beam bigger, you're going to not damage the optics, so it starts getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And by the time our powerful beam reaches what we call the petawatt area, which is 10 to the 15 watts of power, 10 million million times more powerful than a light bulb. The beam is a meter in diameter. It's phenomenal. So we need massive optics and massive facility, which is why you don't really see these lasers hanging around in universities. You need them in a big central facility like the one we have in the UK. Um, and then at the very last knock-ins, you take these beams and you focus them 
So say in our petal area, we take a metre scale beam and we focus it down to a fraction of a human hair, five microns, using a parabolic mirror, much like the one that's in the back of Hubble. And that basically takes you to the 10 to the 21 watts per square centimetre, which means we can do all this extreme science. So pretty exciting. And you have to do all of that under vacuum because the laser will otherwise just impart its energy to the air and make a plasma there, which is not what you want. You want to fire it into a material. Um, so what do we use these high-power lasers for? Um, we can use them for all sorts of things. One of the interesting things you can use it for is if you fire these high-power lasers into a jet of gas, the laser propagates through and makes a wake of plasma behind it. And that wake of plasma can actually trap electrons, for example, and surf them to very high energies. Okay? So if you think about the Large Hadron Collider, it's like 22 kilometers around. And the reason it's that big is because all the superconducting magnets um, are at the limit of just before they start to break down and make plasma. What they're trying to do is avoid making plasma. So that's why you need these big rings. However, we're in the business of making plasma. And plasma can support very high electric fields, which means you can accelerate particles over meters, tens of meters, instead of tens of kilometers. So we could effectively make the next generation of particle accelerators um, smaller scale, but reaching high energies, hopefully. I'm not going to overstate where we are. We've only guided them over like a few millimeters so far. But we have increased the understanding of, of how these beams are generated vastly over the last few years. So very interesting physics there. And as I said, we're making the most extreme conditions on Earth. So we can do miniature astrophysics in the laboratory, looking at supernovae, shocks, collisionless shocks, jets, things like that. And it's been shown that you can scale these things to, to astrophysical quantities. So it's also quite interesting. Um, it's, a, it's a source of secondary um, radiation, like neutrons, protons, gamma rays, x-rays. So you can do lots of atomic physics and nuclear physics with these secondary sources as well because they only exist for, you know, less than a nanosecond or whatever, because these lasers that we're dealing with are peak a second in length, so that's 10 to the minus 12 of a second. That's by no means as short as you can go, but uh, it's, a, it's a good level for the kind of physics we're doing. Um, and I could talk to you forever about this uh, topic, um, but we could also use um, these high-power lasers to make fusion energy, okay? So, what's fusion? Well, you can take... For example, the things that we're trying to do on Earth is take two types of hydrogen, deuterium and tritium, and squish them together. Um, a fusion reaction happens, and what you get is a release of energy in the kinetic energy of the helium and the neutron that are produced. Okay? So that's essentially what we're trying to do, squish two atoms together, as opposed to conventional nuclear, which is splitting a big atom. And the advantages to doing that is it's very clean. You don't produce any carbon or long-lived radioactive isotopes. So it's kind of seen as the holy grail of, of energy, okay? so, which is the thing that gets me out of bed in the morning, I guess, knowing that I'm sort of contributing to, in some small way, to clean, secure energy for the future. So how do you use a laser to do that? Well, you take a pellet, a little spherical pellet, say half a millimetre in diameter, and you take lots of powerful lasers. Now, these lasers are high energy, but they're kind of long pulse, 10 nanoseconds. That's long, OK? Billionth of a second is a nanosecond. Say you take maybe 192 of these beams and you squish the pellet until it's a thousand times solid density. So all the atoms are really close together. So that, that means when they have the temperature to fuse, they're going to fuse with something. It's, there's no point in it being across the other side of the room because then it means the process takes ages. Okay? All the atoms are close together. How do you heat this to 100 million degrees centigrade? Well, the laser hits the surface of material and launches a shock. And that shock propagates in, and when a shock stops, it deposits all of its energy, and that raises the fuel to fusion temperatures. So essentially, that's what we're doing. Um, 100 million degrees centigrade, that's 10 times hotter than the sun. And to sustain a power station, you do that four times a second. Okay, so one of the biggest problems we face is this out-of-date technology, because you can only fire these once every half an hour to an hour. That's no good. You want to do it four times a second. What do you do? You need to improve the repetition rate and efficiency of lasers, which is something we're now working towards as part of this fusion project, which is um, rather than pumping this 
or pumping a medium with white light, which is wasteful because given atomic physics, only a small narrow wavelength band is actually going to be useful. The rest is wasted as heat in the rod, which, which is the limit to how often you can fire. So what you do is you pump it with another laser, a diode laser. And you make these diode pump solid state lasers, which are going to be hopefully the future of energy generation. So what that does is you're also increasing your efficiency because you're using all of the energy usefully, well, most of the energy usefully, as opposed to wasting it as, as heat in the rod. And then because the rods aren't getting heated so much, you can fire more times a second. So over the next, say, seven to ten years, we've got to really bring on this technology because we don't have it right now and we need it. So, um, and also we need to prove the physics works as well. So <laughs> just a few small things to do, but, you know. <laughs> it, yes, well, that is, that, that is my argument. Otherwise, I'd be in the park <laughs> drinking cider. Okay, I'm just going to wrap up quite quickly because I'm aware that I have been talking forever. Um, what's the future of lasers? Uh, just briefly, um, we may be able to, I mean, we have a technique called laser tweezers where we can suspend nanoparticles, for example. This isn't high-power lasers. This is sort of low-power, tickly molecule lasers as opposed to ripping them apart. Um, you can hold nanoparticles. So you might be able to hold and manipulate single cells for diagnostics, for example, lab on a chip type stuff. Um, take proteins, for example, and unfold them because there are diseases which are thought to... Um, be associated with protein misfolding, like Alzheimer's and BSE. If you could unfold and understand the forces involved in that, um, and then watch them refold again using these tweezers, you can maybe understand these diseases better and help drug design and things like that. So that could be the future of sort of the lower power lasers. Um, also, on a sort of medical theme, um, high power lasers can actually generate secondary sources, um, X-rays, extreme ultraviolet, terahertz. And you could possibly develop those for medical imaging, um, diagnostics, and even security, for example, terahertz can be used um, for imaging people in airports and things like that, which is a lot safer. So um, interesting developments there as well. Um, what about in communications and computing? Well, lasers can actually form a fundamental part of what will be the world's most powerful computers, a quantum computer, okay? Um, this is a completely different concept. I'm not an expert, by the way, so please don't ask me about this after the show. Um, basically, it, it, a quantum computer will enable you to instantaneously calculate many different things, which will render all modern encryption of modern computers useless. However, you will have the most secure encryption, which is quantum encryption. So uh, these computers are going to revolutionize the way we can calculate things. We can model ginormous systems in science, but also it'll revolutionize just everyday life as well. Um, these little diode lasers I was talking about, um, often you have to sort of mix or um, use nonlinear effects to make different colors. However, people have been sort of using different materials, these sort of PN junctions, to make pure green, which has been very difficult, pure blue. Pure red is fairly easy to make, and we've had those for ages. But the pure green and the pure blue have been very difficult. But they're coming into fruition now. So if you can get red, green, and blue, pure diodes, they're tiny, so you can fit those in a device. You may be able to project TV, for example, from your mobile phone using these tiny little diodes, because that's the fundamental colors that you need for TV to work. So that might revolutionize... Uh, you might think that's pointless, but I actually think that's quite cool. Anyway, these I'm sure these things will make someone a lot of money anyway. So, um, and just finally, for the astrophysical, um, you can actually use um, lasers as a way of, uh, as an artificial star, to sort of calibrate your telescopes. And at the moment, they're kind of 2D-ish, but you might be able to make more sophisticated lasers that, and techniques that um, can account for sort of uh, atmospheric wiggles, let's say, in between. And, and, and you can... You can image the sky a, a, a lot more accurately than you would able to do like, normally. So that will sort of increase our understanding just from a ground-based perspective on on um, deep space, for example. So, uh, but I'm not an expert on it. So, <laughs> um, and just finally, just to wrap up, we may be able to use lasers to detect gravitational waves. So there's there's something called LIGO, which is uh, what's it's an interferometer essentially. So um, this is a ground-based one, but there's one called LISA, which is going to be in the air. And they both work in the same way. So you've got two arms orthogonal to each other with mirrors and lasers, okay? And essentially what this is is an interferometer. So you've got lasers bouncing back and forth here and here. And when they meet here, the lasers can interfere. When they do, they produce a series of 
fringes. Okay? Now, if the path of one of these changes very, very slightly because gravitational waves have passed through, the fringes will change here. And it's a way of detecting gravitational waves because we've never done that before. And normally in the universe, we can only detect things by, by, the, fact that, by the fact that they emit radiation, right? But that's only a very small part of the universe. A lot of it's made up of dark energy, dark matter. So how can we get a grip of the mass of that with these gravitational waves? So that will increase our understanding of who we are exactly and, and why we're here and things. So lasers can, can do the most mundane things like barcodes to helping us detect gravitational waves. So I hope I've done at least some way in showing you the, the amazing world of lasers. And I'm going to absolutely shut up now and allow you to ask me some questions. So thank you very much for your attention. <laughs>